Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Statistically Insignificant Podcast. I'm Jared Hunter, and I'm here with uh, my co-host, Eric Drathnell. Uh, today, we're lucky enough to have a co-worker of ours from SickKids, uh, Lauren Erdman. She's a PhD student in Anna Goldenberg's lab there. One of her big projects here, which is trying to predict uh, surgery for hydronephrosis uh, in infants. Lauren, with that introduction, I guess, uh, what can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in that? Sure, yeah. I would say the project is really focused on garnering insight from ultrasound images and only using the image or very little other information about the patient. Uh, so simple things like maybe sex uh, of the patient or some other factor uh, to basically give those insights that you wouldn't be able to get unless you spent a long time with repeated follow-ups with the patient or if you used more expensive technology to make a measurement on that kidney or a more invasive measurement that maybe you don't have access to. Um, and the real goal here is to expand access to information for clinicians uh, who, again, like you won't know the future of the patient, so maybe you can uh, get some information about that. Um, and then also clinicians or even parents who don't actually have access to these other technologies, and they maybe only have an ultrasound, maybe they can get some reassurance uh, using this algorithm, or maybe uh, better decision-making can be made about uh, more invasive procedures or more invasive management of certain patients. Yeah, Lauren, thanks for that introduction of the kind of work you're doing right now at the hospital where Jared and I also work. Before we dive into just following up on some of those things you brought up, this sounds really interesting. Can you just tell us how you even got to be working on this project? How did you get to sick kids? This stuff sounds like it's on the cutting edge. Tell us a little bit about your path to this point for this project. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. So I have to say it's been a really winding road. Um, I even wrote myself some notes when I was told that I would have to talk about uh, how I got here. So basically, uh, I would say I came from like when I when I first started in university, I thought I was going to be in biochem and basically quickly found out that I am not a competitive student in that field. So um, I switched over to international studies. I was like, maybe this is something I can handle better. And I did, but I found that everything was quite hand wavy. I didn't feel like it can make an impact. Um, and then the work would be just like a lot of memos and stuff. So I was looking for something more concrete and, and a more concrete way to really make an impact. So I went into econ. Um, and so I studied economic development in developing countries through econ and international studies and basically learn from that that again like I really want much more concrete transferable skills that can make an impact. I found a lot of policies or a lot of initiatives ended up you know best case making a small positive impact, worst case doing the exact opposite of what they were intended to do. And so I studied statistics. So I took on another minor in statistics. I couldn't believe my mom didn't freak out when I told her this after going through so many majors, to be honest. But she was fine with it. And through that, I learned, you know, through measurement alone or, or evaluating things numerically, you can actually um, make a huge impact or at least be guiding your principles and your approaches um, on much stronger footing. So, and I saw that I actually could apply this to biology, which as I said, like was kind of originally what I was intending to do. So from that, I was like, great, I'm going to go do biostats in grad school. And I did. And in biostats, I really was focused on genetics because I thought it was going to be this big splash and we were going to like really change medicine with genetics. And again, like I kept feeling like the turnaround to a translational impact, the, uh, the ability to actually translate those results was so hindered by the effect of any singular genetic uh, mutation. Like we just 
learned that this thing that we thought was going to be a big splash was kind of pretty minor. And especially I was focused on uh, psychiatric genetics, which basically what, what they've discovered through psychiatric genetics is uh, the biology of psychiatric disorders is extremely complex. It's mm. often encoded by huge amount of the genome. And there are things that are like maybe metabolism or um, just like very generic sounding pathways because there's so much that's going into your like psychological manifestations. Again, like it just, it seemed kind of like my impact would be limited there and working with big data and, and in much closer to like big servers and uh, more complex computational algorithms. I basically was like, I think maybe where the impact will come is in computer science or machine learning or something much more almost I would say like engineering focused uh, where you look and see like uh, what can we predict well and how can we turn that around into maybe some capacity building or actually delivering some tangible impact to the healthcare system. So in my PhD, I've really turned to focus on that now in computer science, focused on health and biology still, but um, much more focused on is this, ex is this technology that I'm developing um, actually expanding impact for people? Is it increasing accessibility to um, certain information or uh, the ability to even like measure or treat something? Um, and so that's really where I focus now. And I would say that through all of what I've studied, it's really given me like a lot of connections, to be honest. It's made me really comfortable in the hospital. It's made me able to kind of like evaluate uh, certain projects as like likely to have a real impact versus like there's a lot of problems here that that are going to hinder it and yeah that's I would say where I've ended up that's that's kind of my winding road uh, full of like lots of different degrees and disciplines and what have you thanks Lauren that was a very expansive answer and it was what I was looking for too because I, oh, I want I, I know about your change or slow evolution of research interests over time mm -hmm. and so it, was, it was really cool to kind of see the the fossilized record of that in yeah. real time just going back to the first project you described that you're working on how do these things actually come about people have been performing ultrasounds for the condition you've described for decades so how does someone actually at the hospital think can machine learning help with that did you go to the doctors or totally totally so i would say here and in most of the projects that i've been in that I've seen a lot of success from, uh, it actually came from the clinicians. So in this case, it was a nurse practitioner who um, had already put through like the re research ethics protocol. The data was already compiled. They'd been keeping a database I think they called it hydronephrosis registry in the clinic for ages, actually, at that point. Um, they put out multiple papers already analyzing it, and they've used it in an online, I believe it was like a free Microsoft kind of web interface uh, ML software to actually analyze their data, so to build a predictive algorithm already. So they basically did everything they could that up to where we actually would become useful and then came to us. And so... I think that actually is why this project has been so successful thus far. It's uh, a group that is extremely research interested and focused. And uh, whenever I say something like, wow, like, wouldn't it be great to get this variable? They add it to that database. They, they have research uh, volunteers and students who are filling it in all the time. So there's just a ton of energy and I would say will and mm. uh, actual like investment, like human hours put into this on that end. 
making it possible for us to really focus on the deep learning and like the actual problem itself without having to think about, you know, all the administrative layers and data collection and how do we access these patients and what does it mean when we get uh, this kind of error versus this other kind of error, for example. It sounds kind of like you're describing they've, you've been able to find a project where you've been able to take people that are invested and have the will from kind of the need directly to is machine learning skills, right? And so you have that whole chain of collaboration, really. Yes, yeah, yeah. And they've put so much work and energy into it. Um, And we meet continuously, like we're, we are even in a group chat, for example, like, um, so being personally close has actually really helped uh, move things forward as well. Right. Yeah, there was one other idea, I guess, to kind of take it in a bit of a different direction. Mm -hmm. But something that I thought was striking about your story was it seemed almost like, well, there was such a logic to all of the steps and that you seemed to move from to these more and more complex problems where you saw that it was such a broad base of signal almost, right? Where you talked about the genetics, it's so many different genes playing a big role. Do you see that you've moved into this ML as like you're trying to find these tools for these same problems, right? Like, do you see the ML as a route to address these problems that have that such a broad base? Because before it would always be like a lot of the classical models, I find there's always an issue of too many variables and Mm. overfitting in that way. And so now though with machine learning and some of this deep learning, there is obviously a problem with this overfitting, but we're kind of trying to develop all these techniques that can take these broader signals. Do you think that ML really plays a role in, in being able to Uh, fix that? I think it does for sure. But what I really took away from the like working with genetics, and this is nothing against people who work in that field. It is essential. There are so many amazing things being found out. And I think ML is helping a lot in that. But my lesson was the effect size of a lot of these genetic variants is minuscule. The effect size of a child not having access to food reliably or someone just being poor in general, that is enormous when you're measuring the exact same outcome. So it made me think about like, we actually have things that we could change to help people really meaningfully in a way larger way than anything that would treat any individual genetic marker here or any, even a group of them, for example, and a larger effect than most drugs that are given to these people. So um, it made me just think about like, first off, like there's probably a much easier, more direct way to address uh, these issues. And then the other thing I was thinking was um, maybe there's even an easier way to measure and prognosticate for them. So like genetics are extremely expensive and difficult to measure. Maybe there are other signals that are much cheaper and easier and more accessible that will give you the data set size that you can actually make a better uh, a better prediction with, a more reliable prediction, or you can even have the en- enough data to evaluate your prediction uh, reliably. Hmm. Lauren, one thing I found when I worked in uh, genetics for about mm-hmm. a year as a bioinformatician was that my skill set wasn't that valuable as someone yeah. trained in statistics <laughs> and economics and that there needed to be a certain basic level of statistical rigor and analysis and just making sure that people kind of weren't fudging or using totally. the tools improperly. But it felt to me like a very much still a research environment as opposed to maybe what we might say just colloquially like a production level type tool yes. uh, where you need to have a lot of domain expertise. Like how, how many more years do you think genetics and genomics is going to be in this space where 
realistically, unless you have like an undergraduate degree in biology or a master's program in bioinformatics, it's, it's really not the right place for people just with general computer science or statistic skills beyond um, maybe a consultative role. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that will change. I, I'm not sure it should change. Uh, I think part of the reason that people who have like a purely like analytical background um, may not be that helpful beyond a consultative role is because there's a huge amount of biological context with every marker. First off, what struck me when I started to not just um, do like genome-wide association studies, but to do more like genomics and look at like microRNA and RNA-seq and all of these different genomic data types was how complex and unknown so much of it is. And so there's, <laughs> it's kind of funny uh, that I feel like I have to be reminded of this so often, but I mean, there's a reason people do like multiple degrees completely focused in like just cell biology is that it's so complex and there's so much not known yet. So mm -hmm. I think it's, I'm not sure it will ever be the case that you can just jump in and not really have a background. I think, I think people think you can do that with a lot of disciplines and most of the time are proven wrong. Um, so even in health where people are like, yeah, I've been to the doctor and I've totally watched like ER or Grey's Anatomy. So I, <laughs> I think I get what goes on at the doctor's office. I can tell you, and I'm sure both of you have experienced this, that the data is not intuitive at that level. And there's so much intricacy, even um, institution to institution on how care is actually delivered realistically and how that's reflected in data that I think trying to just say like, oh, this is like the analytical part. And this is like the, I don't know, context specific part or something. I, I think that's quite a fool's errand, honestly. Just to follow up, this is more of a statement than a question, but I think right. the one difference <laughs> is that I feel that I'm at least able to help them and that Absolutely. I do need to learn a lot about what they do, but I don't feel that I'm just merely being consultative. I feel like we're equal partners and we bring in nice. different skill sets to the table, whereas genetics, I felt like it was more like 90-10. Personally, that was what uh, kind of a difference that I felt when I was in that field. Yeah, and it may be that, like, because uh, we all go to the doctor, for example, we've had many interactions with the healthcare field, maybe the learning curve is a little less steep for that data. And so it's possible to have um, a more, a bigger role in any of those projects. Whereas I do think, like, I mean, there are people who specialize in analytics for genetics and genomics. And again, I think they don't lack the background in the genetics, so they can actually play a major role. But even though it's like purely analytical from that perspective, yeah. I had another question, I guess, about the, the model and your expectations with this hydronephrosis project. Mm, yeah. You've already said like your goals are really to increase your access, to be able to try and prevent or mitigate the need for these kind of more invasive tests in between predicting for the surgery. I guess I wanted to know like, where do you think is like the, a minimal level of performance that your model needs to achieve for it to actually be able to play uh, a significant role in improving kind of these kids' lives? Would you need to achieve kind of a superhuman performance? Or do you even think if it's able to predict as well as a doctor just from these ultrasounds, do you think it can still play a significant role? Yeah, I mean, I don't really think of it as like competing with a doctor. I think of it more as I would say in, in evaluating the models, I set a 5% false negative rate or a maximum 10%. And if it's failing in test sets um, in any subgroup um, on that, then I would say it's, it's a failure. Like we can't use it because the repercussions of that are that is those are patients that did need to go and have more invasive procedures, have more invasive management. 
and didn't receive that. So that's where I would set the threshold. But I don't think that I don't think comparing it to a doctor makes sense because doctors are really uh, in in a lot of these cases they're they're following a protocol that's existed a long time. So mm-hmm. they're like, okay, this falls below this level. So next, I'm gonna I'm gonna basically do a nuclear scan or a VCUG or whatever procedure that is basically prescribed after a certain marker is at a certain level. So I wouldn't say it's it's competitive. It's more about can we streamline how these patients are cared for and make sure that we're doing it in a safe manner that doesn't kind of codify any bias in the population where, mm-hmm. you know, poor patients are systematically going to be missed more or something like that. So yeah, like I think I think it's very close. And I think actually the the threshold for um, making a huge impact is not that high. Like it, it doesn't have to do a great job. It just has to do a pretty good job. It's not like those patients won't be seen by doctors ever again. So um, you keep them in the system and you just make sure that um, you give them no greater care than they need um, because it's a huge cost to come down from Thunder Bay to sick kids, for example, like these yeah. are all government grants and it's taking time out of patients and parents' lives to do this in often very stressful and expensive ways. Right. Well, I wonder even... Because it wasn't like the next step would even be like MRI or CAT scan. And then there can be exposure and radiation, which on newborns is pretty, can be traumatic, right? Yeah, exactly. And catheterization. It's avoiding all of these things for those kids who really wouldn't go on to get surgery. They wouldn't wouldn't have anything else in their life that uh, would require this. So you just save them an early life exposure. Lauren, one thing about your answer that I think it highlighted and a topic that I wanted to discuss next was how machine learning and biology is different. Jared's question about, you know, does your algorithm exceed, match, or is it like subhuman performance (laughs) is how most machine learning people think about a lot of tasks, right? Yeah. So if it's something like um, finding all the instances of cars in an image, there is a right answer. We know how well humans do on average and we can venture Mm -hmm. against that. And your point, um, at least when it came to this tool, was that it's not even necessarily uh, in biology, or at least these medical tasks anyway, may not even have the, the same comparison because they're being used for slightly different reasons. The goal is not to actually replace the doctor. And so th- that's a good example of where ML and biology is maybe a little bit different than other fields of ML. So what I want to know is, what, what are some other things that make machine learning and biology unique beyond the type of things we see in like I don't know, natural language processing or self-driving cars or uh, Google's uh, search completion things. That, what, what are your views about what makes doing what you do in biology and healthcare a bit unique? I'm going to make some suggestions for what might be unique. And um, I don't want to downplay because again, like when I go to another field, I realize, you know, this is so much more complex than I even realized. But I would say one thing is like the the consequences, the downstream consequences of getting it wrong are are actually life and death. That I would say is one difference from some parts of ML. I mean, self-driving cars certainly face that. And then another one might be, yeah, where ML fits into the workflow or what's an actually practical use for it. Um, as you uh, kind of alluded to, I'm seeing tasks in the workflow of how clinicians work and seeing, you know, where can we increase patient safety? Where can we reduce cost? What is a high touch maybe thing that we're doing now, like intervention, for example, that requires a lot of face-to-face time with a clinician? Is it possible to do it in a more efficient way? So seeing ML from that perspective, whereas I think 
in other areas, it might be literally just like replacing humans for a specific task. In NLP, for example, if you can listen and then you write like all the words for it, transpose, mm, right? Transcribe, isn't it? Transcribe. Right? There we transcribe. go. Yes. So things like that, automating transcription, uh, mm. for example, like it's replacing a human quite literally, as you said, whereas I think there are spaces in health and biology that need that. But I think for the most part, ML is not going to be useful as like an automated doctor or an automated uh, what have you. I think it'll be more of um, how do we expedite and, and make safer and more efficient everything that we're already doing. And with a mind on like, for example, how climate change will affect how healthcare is delivered and who needs it and how they can access it. At the same time, I say this and I think this shouldn't be unique to medicine. If I owned a business or uh, was CEO of something, I would also be thinking about my own corporation and the logistics, for example, and um, maybe even like using it for um, scheduling or some kind of like strategic initiatives. I could imagine ML being very useful in uh, many of these contexts um, in both private and public enterprise. What do you think the low-hanging fruit for the machine learning tasks are in healthcare or biology? Uh, off the top of my head, I think some stuff to do with imaging, some of the, so some of the stuff you've described with ultrasounds, yeah. but yeah. cell like counting, pattern recognition. Totally. Pattern recognition. So th those, those things seem obvious, especially if it involves an image and doctors find it boring. Seems like a yes, low-hanging exactly, fruit. Are exactly. There, are there any other ones beside that kind of broad category? And that covers a lot of stuff. But I'm just that curious. does cover a lot of stuff. I can also imagine like reducing the search space. Like I know with uh, COVID, you know, for looking for uh, what is a good target for vaccines, some people have been using ML for that. And so uh, also I'm really inspired by Prophet U of T who does basically chemical engineering. And so they try to see like, what is a good chemical to synthesize and, and lower the search space using ML. So I think that that's another really exciting area. I've personally become very frustrated by unsupervised methods. So that's mm -hmm. not an area I'll be contributing to personally, but um, I can see it being extremely useful and uh, existing kind of independently of the pattern recognition gains that we've made. Yeah. My last kind of question on this topic of ML and biology is what, what do you think the biggest contributions have been so far? Not what they could be and what the low-hanging fruit that's yet to be picked is just again i just thought about it for a couple seconds and the things that popped up in my head were maybe and this is stuff that's been data driven right so mm -hmm. what what could yes. we not have done without people that have statistics or computer science degrees so breast cancer subtyping using sure. kind of unsupervised methods for gene expression rare variant finding for specific diseases using databases like ClinVar. Again, there's a huge number of people that have rare diseases in aggregate and individually mm -hmm. there's a small percentage. So that seems like a very useful database. And actually the statistics aren't that complicated behind it. Mm -hmm. but that's, that's something that basically everyone has access to who either gets breast cancer or has a rare disease. Now, is there anything else that's like very ubiquitous or is just machine learning not that consistently applied in ML and uh, in biology yet, that there can be these other things that people are going to say, hey, actually, I'm being impacted by this on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I would say, I think actually one of the biggest, best impacts uh, ML has had in health is really highlighting the pervasive bias that exists in it. Kind of the failure of a lot of the models, I think, has been a really useful thing uh, for the field to see. Um, because like I said before, it's not a new problem, but because this sexy new tool is being hampered by this problem, now suddenly people are like, hey, 
looks like healthcare is biased. And I think that is a very important change. And it's really important that light is being shown on that and that now maybe there's pressure to build models that overcome that bias and to even deliver care in a way that might not be biased. So I think the failure of the models has also been an extremely positive impact in the field. One more follow-up to that. Are you concerned, though, about the potential overselling of this stuff? So Google's released a couple papers in the last mm. year or two about uh, diabetic retinopathy uh, eye scans, and now the big one about breast cancer screening that came out this year, too. Are you concerned that they or other institutions might be kind of riding on the hype around uh, machine learning and, and being able to apply biased algorithms or algorithms that don't actually embed themselves well in existing clinical pipelines in the future? Mm -hmm. Well, so I would say uh, kind of two things about that. One, I mean, we're all selling. I mean, I, I'll say I'm selling all of my stuff with the same thing that Google's using. So on the one hand, yes, but I don't think it's a problem that will ever go away. Like there's always going to be buzzwords. There's always going to be hype around something. So um, it's kind of nice that it might be used for something that would have a sweeping impact in healthcare, even if it's not always the best impact. And the failures of the models, I think, uh, will help push that to be hopefully a more positive impact um, as they come under fire. I would also say, I mean, it, it made people also kind of start to bristle up or, or take notice to how their healthcare data is used and sold and, and passed around uh, among different people. So that's just like another failure that's actually been really, uh, I think, positive with this. And then the other thing is, yeah, I actually couldn't believe Google was able to publish a paper that was like, oh, you know, when you don't have a good workflow, people don't use your ML tool. Like that was basically the paper that came out, I think this last fall uh, for the histology tool that they built. I think that too is also really important that they're embedding in workflows. And I think they and many others are learning. If you build something that like a doctor or a nurse or any healthcare provider is not willing to use, it is as if you built nothing at all. Like you cannot, you need to have the end in mind when you start. Sometimes, sometimes you can get around that a bit. But if you're building something that requires like a hundred checkboxes to be looked over every single patient, probably it's not going to work out. I think we're seeing this a lot with electronic health records too, where um, just the user interface, it's just not optimized for how care is actually being delivered. And I think it's yet another problem that has existed for a long time. And it's good that there's attention to it now. So I'm not so worried. I think there's a lot of eyeballs on the problem. I think the people who really need to be aware about it are actually quite aware. Although I would say uh, it is interesting to watch too how Google is um, and, and other companies are, and I will even say we are even looking at doing this, moving these technologies into developing countries and the kind of good and bad that could be coming from that where are these countries being used as basically labs um, these people are effectively lab participants and maybe not in a consented manner. Likely it's because it's a less regulated environment and Google is a massive com uh, company that is able to do that. I think it's just some that's something I'm really interested to keep my eyes on. And um, as someone who's also building similar technology that also wants to move it into developing countries, uh, I, I mean, I'm going to be even looking for myself to making sure that it's being done in a, in a really ethical, uh, mindful way. Um, that's not exploiting people in those countries who have been, frankly, exploited historically very often. Okay, we need to make sure ML doesn't go the constant gardener route. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Fair enough. So actually, I have a question kind of 
almost a bit different of a topic here, but sure. we've seen kind of in COVID where there's been like a lot of talk about privacy concerns and mm-hmm. where there's like a lot of data that some countries have been able to use that may or may not. I think the, the final conclusion is not out yet because it seems like Singapore's had a bit of a resurgence, but mm-hmm. Taiwan's been very successful where they've just used massive data, personal data from a lot of people to great effect for a great health outcome. Do you see kind of these concerns around privacy in the West as a big barrier to some of the innovation? Do you think that that's something that maybe countries in the West will maybe have to reckon with in that maybe to get some of the most optimal health outcomes, we're not going to be able to have our privacy needs in this domain met all the time, especially if like, I mean, I have a a very through the grapevine understanding of like some of the differential privacy work where it seems like it's very, very difficult to get anything completely anonymized and almost impossible. And if it's anonymized, it is very useless to potentially. Yeah. It pulls all of the signal out of the data. Do you think that this is going to be a big barrier? Do you have ideas on how we could even address that? Or do you think that it has to be just a cultural thing or we just have to, admit defeat and have these lower health expectations, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And that's such a good question. I honestly, I really don't know. I I think about this myself. I am a big fan of Edward Snowden's and all of it. I'll just say, I think that he has done great work in really pointing out, you know, where even assumed privacy is not there, uh, like the privacy many of us assumed we had. And then even with uh, the different kind of court cases coming up against Google in the UK and Chicago uh, with health data, people even realizing, oh my God, my hospital records are going to Google. Like I wasn't okay with that. I'm not okay with that. Yeah, I see what you mean. It seems like you either lose one way or you're losing another way. So you're either losing your uh, sense of privacy or you're losing your sense of uh, an effective public health response to some really big things that, I mean, are happening now. But I foresee, I mean, this isn't going to be the last time something large like this happens, I'm sure, if not a pandemic, like all various things that uh, can go wrong uh, epidemic-wise. And there are many existing epidemics right now that probably could use this. Um, Yeah. Well, you could even think 2015 with MERS in South Korea, right? So, I mean, obviously, yeah, there's epidemics that have as large an effect on a single country. Maybe Mm -hmm. they're not hitting every country, right? Exactly. So, I'm I'm not sure because I'm not I don't perceive the uh, privacy of health data as hindering my own work. I think that Mm. there's a lot of places where effective or more rapid processes need to be put in place. So for example, um, just like going through, uh, we're getting inter-institutional data now for uh, this kidney ultrasound project for predicting uh, surgery. And that process is filled with so many administrative steps, so many sign-offs, so many next steps, and it's specific to each individual institution that we make that legal arrangement with to have the data transferred. And Mm -hmm. so I think even thinking from a a kind of like operations perspective, like having someone come in and say like, how do we actually streamline this process? Because right now I've basically gone through like six years of being at SickKids and that has made me able to do this quite rapidly now. But Mm. if someone hadn't been at that institution for so long, hadn't been, you know, on a first name basis with lawyers, first name basis with privacy office, even not me not knowing the security officers well has slowed things down itself. So the the fact that it relies on just like so many personal relationships and personal understanding of the institution, I think is a huge Mm. 
problem because it slows down every single step in an, in a research project and actually sharing and, and putting this data together. So I think right. thinking of it from like an actual operations or like how do we move this forward and like how much should be on an individual researcher or an institution uh, to make these things secure and doable, still uh, keeping in mind patient privacy and intent and everything, I think that's that's where a lot of the solutions will come from. And I think that our hospitals and 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 many uh, public health organizations, they're just not nimble like that. They're I don't think they're thinking in this way. Many of the solutions I hear about involve hiring a lot of people or having a lot of humans. And it's not something where, you know, it's like, how can we actually automate this? Or like, how can we just make this like much more rapid? Like, is there some software we can build? Is there something that we can do to just make it so you don't have to like call someone up and have your hand held through the entire process? Right. Um, because these I'm, things are happening so often. I'm curious, uh, you say you've kind of heard some of these ideas of like, you know, expanding, hiring more people to get more output, hopefully. Where mm -hmm. are some of those ideas coming from? Do you see like that pressure? Is it coming from like the researchers that want more access? Is it coming from the hospitals that want to be able to deliver better outcomes or or what's is where's that? Yeah. So the pressure is coming from the researchers, but the solutions right. are coming from the administration. And okay. so often the administrators, they just don't have a technical background to know, you know, like they don't even understand maybe user permissions, for example, like the idea of user permissions. So you can store all the data on the same server, but it's not accessible to everyone who accesses that server, for mm -hmm. example. So concepts like that, um, where uh, I think a lot of these things could be solved technologically. I think it just is hampered by, honestly, lack of imagination. Great. Well, Lauren, now that we've passed the halfway point in our interview, I want to move to uh, our lightning round. So awesome. first I'm going to awesome. ask you some a series of questions that are underrated versus overrated. So I'm just going to throw out a word or a concept and I want to hear your opinion. Um, feel free to say that it's neutral. So it's somewhere okay. in between or feel free to pass if you don't have an opinion on it. First underrated or overrated question. Small cities with the names of European capitals, <laughs> Moscow, Paris, London, Berlin, etc. Um, Neutral, neutral. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The state of Idaho. <laughs> Oh, you know, neutral, because I would say in some contexts, it's probably overrated. And in other contexts, it's very underrated. Yeah. Okay. This is bad. I feel like I'm passing on so many. No, here. no, Sorry. that's okay. There's, there's many more. Don't worry. Um, Good. <laughs> the sea bus that connects uh, the mm. Broad Inlet in North Vancouver. Yeah. Underrated. Underrated. Why? Mm -hmm. What makes it so um, awesome? Well, uh, you're talking about the sea bus that is... Um, uh, between North Van and downtown. Yeah. 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 I mean, so I was on a U pass, which for anybody who didn't uh, go to university in Vancouver, uh, that's uh, what I considered <laughs> basically, yeah, most people, I considered basically like a free bus pass. But basically, uh, your student uh, tuition goes towards a, a bus pass for every semester. I considered it like a free boat ride, basically. Like you can just take a really pleasant ride, like to downtown if you're in North Van or to North Van if you're downtown. You end up at a really nice location either way. You've got like your Lonsdale Key. You can shop around, go to the market there or otherwise you're downtown. So yeah, I think it's excellent. And I'll never forget, I just have to say about that sea bus. So when um, the Canucks, I believe it was the Canucks lost the playoffs. I want to put it yeah. in like, 
2012 maybe uh, uh yeah and then there was the riots and it was yeah. very embarrassing yeah, yeah. Was, so uh, i lived like two blocks from the stadium and i was riding over on mm -hmm. the sea bus from my job in north van uh and i was <laughs> i knew that there would be riots because i was riding over with people who were going downtown specifically to riot so I always have oh a really gosh. wonderful memory of like riding the sea bus over to downtown uh, with the rioters who are ready to like light cars on fire and everything. <laughs> Way underrated. You could be part of history on that sea bus. <laughs> All right. Instrumental variable analysis. Hmm. I would say neutral. I would say I would say it's underrated, but it's useful in such few scenarios that yeah maybe it will become more underrated in the future when people are starting to use this uh coronavirus pandemic or something as an instrumental variable i'll be interested to see how that interplays like uh i've been thinking about that a little bit in the back of my mind like what natural experiments are we seeing right now <laughs> so <laughs> all right something close to your heart as well cat memes Ooh underrated or sorry no overrated not underrated um i really don't like that people insist on giving cats incorrect grammar um mm. i so i <laughs> i have a bone to pick with whoever decided early on that cats do not speak in like the queen's english so yeah yeah that, <laughs> overrated. That makes sense. dogs should really be the ones with like, exactly the thank grammar. you yeah, yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's like have you met a cat they do not speak like that <laughs> uh next one Intermittent fasting. Mm. Ooh, you got me there. Underrated. Underrated. Yeah. I think it's going to be, I think it's really exciting to see actually what, what we learn about that. Okay. So yeah. you maybe uh, early pioneer, but maybe get on the bandwagon now. Oh, get on the bandwagon now. Yeah. No, we've, I would say cancer is a major threat that we all should be thinking about and is likely growing in all of our bodies right now based on all of the environmental exposures that we're living with. Well, sunshine so and rainbows here. Definitely <laughs> get on the bandwagon now to stop the growth of the cancers that are certainly in your body as we speak. That's coming out of cancer research. That was the number one takeaway I had. We're all living with cancer right now. <laughs> Just a reminder to people listening to the Statistically Insignificant <laughs> podcast, none of us have MDs, so please consult your doctor before acting on any so uh, next yeah. question, underrated versus overrated, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, wow. I'm so glad you said that because I literally just watched Jesus Christ Superstar before I got on the phone with you guys. Don't tell my girlfriend I find him very overrated. <laughs> I do not like his musicals very much at all. Yeah, the I, best I redeeming say, quality of super, Jesus Superstar is that is very short. <laughs> yeah, I was really happy with that. And I would say that the people who love him rate him appropriately. And for the rest of us, overrated. I'm sorry. Fair enough. Okay, three more. Stay with me, okay. here, Lauren. Okay. Tapas. Tapas. Um, underrated, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. 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 It's just why don't why? why don't more people have tapas? I don't know. I don't know. I think they're missing out because we both studied econ variety is what everyone's going for. So tapas, I mean, you're really maximizing your enjoyment of the meal. I think like that's a, it's just like a clear optimal utility. So yeah, tapas underrated. Yeah. So, so speaking of economics, this next one will uh, queue up easily. The okay. life cycle income hypothesis. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I don't know if it's overrated or underrated. I would say it is an ideal that we've learned many people are not able to achieve 
in or terms really of actually, anyone, but, yeah, yeah, frankly. So I don't know. I'm not sure. Neutral, I would say. Yeah. Okay. All right. Last underrated versus overrated. Okay. Postdoc. Not the people. Mm. The- <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. It's hard to say because I haven't done a postdoc yet. Yet. So, or hopefully ever, maybe. I'm not sure because a postdoc can be a wonderful thing, I think. And I would really enjoy a postdoc, I think, if I did it. I can imagine postdocs saying they're very overrated as well. So that's hard. That's a hard one. Can I know your answer to that one? Do you think they're, can I turn the tables at all? Are they overrated or underrated? I think that in some fields, they're probably overrated. And in Mm -hmm. other ones, they're probably underrated. Mm -hmm. I think if a postdoc acts as a, like a necessary career stepping stone, Mm -hmm. there's something kind of, it's gotten a little bit pathological. Yes. Um, It really, postdocs should be the equivalent, in my view, of a sabbatical. Um, and if they yeah. aren't functioning that way in like the medieval university sense of the word, yeah. Um, in the same way that sabbaticals no longer are sabbaticals, postdocs, <laughs> yeah. postdocs anymore. Okay. Well, thanks for giving some insight on those uh, on these myriad of topics here for underrated versus overrated. <laughs> awesome. No problem. There's another question that I've got as well for you. So, um, one of the biggest types in medicine, I think, right now, is this notion of personalization, right? Mm, mm-hmm. um, and mm, I mm-hmm. guess canonically in the media, that's always kind of gone hand in hand with genetics. Mm-hmm. We can just take your genetics, and then we know what's wrong with you, and we can fix you. And this has been, I think, it's kind of on the downswing in the hype cycle, where there's like less and less people talking about it. Do you think? that that's warranted or do you think even maybe it could take a different tact right like you've talked about all these other data points that we can get to have more information about people do you think that maybe personalization is correct it's just doesn't need this genetics focus or do you think when you gotta throw it out just move on yeah i i would agree with your second statement i think that you can personalize but with way cheaper data um i think a lot of people don't realize how little data doctors are working with often when they're making decisions. So even giving doctors more information can really help with personalization, um, so to speak. I don't think personalization is wrong. I think people should want personalized care, but I don't think that it needs to be done with genetics. Like I don't think the idea of personalized care necessitates uh, genetics um, in the healthcare cycle. At some point, I'm sure it will. And I'm, and in some cases, so with certain cancers, 100% it should. But that I find those cases are, are quite rare uh, relative to kind of how it's spouted as like a really general thing of like, oh, you'll 23 and me yourself. And now your doctor will know that you're allergic to the sun so you can get treated in this special right. way. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, I just don't think that the impact is going to be there. Or if I can kind of take what you've said, maybe yeah. you're saying we should take more like this data-driven medicine, yes. bring that more, get more of the data, more of the records, more of the information. Yes, but, absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah, enough. because so little of medicine is evidence-based right now right. Um, that I think we have, we only have up to go, you know, like there's mm-hmm. really so much potential that um, we can tap into by just literally giving doctors more information. And making right. that information available across a person's life cycle. 
between, you know, when they're born. So prenatal care and postnatal care is like very divided. And then like pediatric care and adult care is very divided. And as you're going to different specialists, uh, mm-hmm. what different specialists are saying to you may be very divided and the information they're getting is very different. Um, so finding ways to harmonize that and give them all a lot more information, I think will only help people. Uh, yeah. The amount that people are having to advocate for themselves with very little information themselves, um, uh, like no medical expertise, um, mm-hmm. I think it's, I, I think it really hinders um, uh, anyone's ability to actually get quality care. That really rings true for me. I know when, uh, so I got diagnosed with autoimmune hepatitis uh, many, many years ago now, but I remember it struck me as when I finally went and got transferred to like the liver clinic and my specialists that they had to take physicals and all these baselines because they're like, we have no information on you because yeah. my family doctor's in BC. And then to even get all of that records over, I had to manually go to my family doctor and be like, can you do this for me as a favor? Get it on a CD, bring it across the country, and then get it to like my specialist personally, right? I yeah. had to be that conduit yeah. for information. Right? Unbelievable. And that seems just nuts. And that's the standard. Like yeah. that's, yeah, it's really disappointing. Yeah, even just... Um, there was some kind of confusion where they thought that I had vasculitis mm, because mm-hmm. I had a biopsy in Vancouver General. And basically all the vasculitis clinic in Mount Sinai could go on was the write-up from the surgeon afterwards saying, and the, it was just hung up on one sentence, we think there was evidence of vasculitis in the lungs. And then that was basically it. And so then everything else, they had to do their own data collection because they didn't have any of the images of the lungs. They didn't have any of the biopsy samples. All they had was this one written page report from the surgeon. Yeah. It's like, where did all of that information go? Exactly. And so it's like all of that work and that effort on you, on those new people. Yeah. Right. They used all that time for then all of that to just go up and smoke. Yeah, it's a huge amount of waste. And I think yeah. that uh, it's something that is easily fixable actually. Like spending and sharing information is very doable in this day and age. So I think these kinds of innovations would, would have a sweeping enormous impact and it really isn't even statistical like in nature. It's not a, like it's not a hard problem. It's, it's really just yeah. logistics, yeah. Just IT. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, that is something that has been stunning to me. The amount of problems in healthcare that are really just like simple IT problems. Just, mm. wow, we don't have a shared IT system here. That's the reason this all exists. Yeah, um, it's shocking. Or like, wow, this data collection is horrific, and it's really just the IT system that was used to do it, you know? Like, right. yeah. it's, it's amazing, actually. Lauren, two of the risks I see with this personalized medicine and AI mm. hype buzz going on right now is the following. And I'd and I like to get your comments on it. The first mm-hmm. is that by suggesting that AI gives personalized or precision medicine, it implies that what we had before wasn't that. And that's clearly not the case. Obviously, doctors tailor all of their treatment recommendations to some personal attributes of the patients, right? Sure. Their yeah. mental health, their family background, right? Especially family doctors that have had those patients for years, right? So first of yeah. all, it's just it implies a certain level of uh, personalization that actually exists in the existing medical system. Now, of course, there are some factors that doctors can't act on, and that's really what we're talking about, right? Yes, but- and like more personalized or even medicine that would 
be equivalent to what a family doctor who had been with you your whole life would do. Because I think the reality is the majority of people don't have someone like that in their life. And as they're going Mm -hmm. to new specialists, those people don't have never met you before. So they Mm -hmm. get what they see in the room right then and whatever information you're able to give them. But beyond that, they don't really have a lot to work on. So it's a lot to start from. Like uh, it's very little to start from and it's a lot that you now have to like build up in terms of information. So I agree with you. Like it's, it's already personal in the best case scenario, but I think it has become very impersonal in some uh, situations and there's information that could just be given to make it more so really. Yeah. And this is the second risk, which was implied in your answer to Mm -hmm. me anyway, is that by focusing too much on AI, we forget about the I. So Jared's personal health story, there's nothing that artificial intelligence needed to do there. It was really just a function of institutions and protocols and processes. And I worry that as we become more and more focused on AI solutions, Mm. we start to forget about what the most of the overwhelming problem has something to do with some systems that AI could solve. This is, Mm -hmm. for example, the comparison would be trying to use ML to help you find optimal jogging routes to improve your cardiovascular fitness when most people's problems maybe in the U.S. is that they live in poor neighborhoods and they're afraid to go jogging at night. Like there's no sidewalks. There's no sidewalks. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Is is there a risk that this, these hype words and these kind of uh, these, these research missions just, we just end up forgetting really what medicine is about and what, where the low hanging fruit is outside of this field? Yeah, I think there's absolutely a risk. But I think, again, like there's an opportunity in all of this. So uh, similar to kind of how like people are like, wow, uh, you know, it looks like healthcare is biased based on these biased ML models. And similarly, people can say, wow, it looks like we don't have a healthcare system, like a health IT system that can support any of this kind of the flow of information, the holding of information in like a computable fashion, any of this um, in any of our hospitals, and they're not connected with each other. And so just shining a light on a problem that again has existed since um, we've been in the field since decades prior, and like uh, maybe chronic underinvestment in certain areas, I think it can be really helpful for that. And it can really shine a light. I think it's possible for it to be good or bad, for sure. Now, Lauren, I'm going to pivot to a another topic. I hope that's okay, okay that we're just yeah, jumping yeah. all over the place with you, but you Absolutely. just know so much, so I can't <laughs> help myself when we've got you on the line here. Uh, and so feel free to be very nasty in this segment to mm. economists, because that's where we're going right now. Okay, so, great. Let's do it. But we'll start actually with a, with a nice question, which is, what are some modeling techniques that uh, ML, healthcare, bioinformatics could learn from economics? What do you think to that? Yeah, I think causal modeling, they have, and they just call them different things. For example, I'm trying to remember actually uh, the instrumental variable analysis uh, method that's in genetics, I see as like extremely, um, like a hugely beneficial method that has, I think, come from econ. It seems like it's born in econ and, and has been brought over in the field. I think a lot of things around also just like appropriate proxying and frankly, yeah, just causality in general, I think it does a great job of, like they do a great job of in econ. And um, as people are starting to think much more about causality in uh, their ML models, for example, I think that they should look to econ, which is uh, basically a field very focused on that. I also think 
models that are autoregressive in nature can also uh, learn a lot from econ, just because, again, much of the data that economics have, has dealt with is autoregressive in nature. And so um, there's a huge amount of methods in that field that um, would be really helpful and are being used, I should say. Like, uh, I shouldn't act like this isn't being done. Yeah. The next two questions I'm going to combine, and they're related, so feel free mm -hmm. to tackle them both. One, why are economists so well paid to, for example, buy <laughs> given that economists have very weak programming skills, they probably don't know how to open a shell in Ubuntu. And related to that, do economists have too much power? They seem to run all the important institutions in the world, the IMF, the World Bank, the central banks, they're all the key policy advisors to senior government officials. What's going on there? Mm -hmm. So do economists make that much? That's the thing I don't know, because it seems like maybe there are um, long tails in that distribution. So there's uh, some economists who are making a lot of money. Um, and like, I think a large glut of people who studied econ like economics and maybe make a much more average um, income or don't do anything economics related now um, because from what I saw at least and this is very anecdotal just based on um, our own friends who graduated from the field that many of them are not doing actual economics they've kind of like found a way to like fit into you know like business analytics or um, business logistics or things like that um, but not actually being an economist so I would say you're the outlier. You're one of the biggest outliers uh, in our group in that like you've gone, you went into the central bank and you actually worked there. And that's very few people in our program. And, and I would say like in those competitive spots, I don't think it's unreasonable that people who would be filling mm -hmm. those positions would be paid so much um, money because um, people who are bioinformaticians who also like make their way into really influential p positions in hospitals, for example, um, and are heading up groups, they're making pretty good money too. I would say the tails are long. Like, I, I don't think economists should make less or, or frankly, be less powerful, actually. I'll just jump to that, too, because, I mean, I would only want an economist, for example, as head of a central bank, similar to, like, I would want someone who has worked in public health to be the head of a public health organization. I think it makes sense that economists would be in such positions of power. I think it's important, though, that there are people who are experts in other areas who can um, maybe have it countervailing effects to what economists are suggesting, or maybe point out that, you know, the practical impact of you making this policy or, or putting this forward may be this other unintended consequence. And unintended consequences, I think, are something economists are very familiar with. So having other people there to point them out and help them kind of uh, integrate more of other disciplines into their reasoning uh, is really important, but I don't think they shouldn't be in the rim. I studied econ. I think it is probably one of the most important disciplines like I've studied. Personally, I, I use it in so many parts of my life, including my own work and even in evaluating kind of every next step I'm taking, you know? So I think it's, I think it's a good set of like, even like um, logical rules to follow of like, you know, what impact is this going to have? What's the net effect of this? You know, um, what am I assuming away here? One issue I have, though, about economics, when I compare it to other disciplines in terms of its usefulness to society, is that mm. if you ask me, you know, what are three things that are extremely valuable that I benefit from today that would, that would not have been possible without blank doctors, chemists, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, engineers, it will take me half a millisecond to list you 10 of them. 
Mm-hmm. I really have to struggle when you ask me what in my life would not exist if economists were not around. So I, a couple ones I thought of are, I may not live in a country that has an inflation targeting regime with monetary policy. So sure. that, that could be valuable. Yeah, that um, is very valuable. I mean, talk to people in Venezuela. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Although to be fair, most central banks in Western countries were run by non-economists up until like the sixties and the seventies. And we didn't have hyperinflation, but I take your point. I take your point. And maybe when I buy an auction on Google, I'm using some game theoretic elements there. Sure. Yeah. Okay. But this seems quite a bit different than like penicillin and Mm -hmm. intercontinental air travel. I don't know, like, am I, am I out of whack here? I just, I find it hard to actually list a lot of things that really Mm. impact my life that the economics discipline has come up with. I mean, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Uh, And I think that's actually quite funny because I have the same sense. And I think that this is, this is like a cultural idea that runs through economics that the output of this field is useless in some way. And I think that really pushed me out of the field, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, think, I'm not sure that's necessarily true, actually. So, for example, um, I know someone in the States who, uh, for his PhD thesis work, um, he was the lead programmer for the National Kidney Exchange. And so they used game theory there for kidney exchange. Um, so basically, if you, have, you need a kidney transplant, and someone else needs a kidney transplant, and maybe uh, your mom is willing to donate her kidney, but she's not a match for you, it will find someone else who's a match for you, who's like maybe their parent is, and your parent is a match for them, and you can have a mutually beneficial exchange of organs. And so they had like big chains of uh, transplant exchange and um, like huge network over the U.S. And so it, it's just increased the amount of transplants that are actually available. It's increased the lives of those people who've gotten the transplants that otherwise couldn't have. So I think there's a lot of like hidden things that are being done by economists that maybe we're not all seeing, but actually have an incredibly large impact. Yeah. I mean, as someone who didn't study economics at all, but like I really liked the idea of like opportunity cost even. Yeah. It's something that like a notion that I've used in my daily decision-making. And I wonder, you guys probably know more than me, but like wouldn't like Keynesian economics. So like, you know, all these kind of government interventions, even now in COVID, would those still be as prevalent if there was no school of economics, right? Like, would the government be thinking, oh, look, we're having this supply side shock. And actually, mm-hmm. let's, I want to just pivot here. Both of you guys have studied economics far more formally than me. What do you guys see as, like, I think COVID-19 has kind of brought about an interesting economic problem here because... Mm-hmm. This has been such a supply side shock, whereas most financial crises that we've had have been really on the demand side with like 2008 or the dot-com bubble where people weren't willing to buy. Right now, it's like people aren't willing to produce. Mm-hmm. What kind of tools are in economic theory to deal with situations that are like this to predict what's going to happen or handle this type of crisis? Or do you think this is really uncharted? So personally, I think the most important thing to remember with this is that humans are part of the economy. And if you have an unchecked public health crisis or unchecked epidemic in the human population, you cannot have a a functioning productive economy in the sense. So um, I think that the number one variable in, in like how would you um, impact or, or recover from this pandemic is 
checking the, the public health crisis first, like getting that under control. I think that's like the number one mechanism you have, because if you stop that, then you can start to look at other things to like, you know, stimulate the economy, do monetary policy, do fiscal policy, like um, cut interest rates, you know, uh, send checks to people, you know, like kind of pull on all the levers that economists are really used to. If you don't have like a baseline of like public health, I think all of that becomes super useless in in a lot of ways. And I've become really frustrated by a lot of the dialogue around like, when are we going to stop worrying about people and just like open the economy back up, you know, like acting like the economy exists independently of the humans that are within it. I think if anything, this has shown us that the economy is human interaction. Like if humans can't go out, if they can't produce, if they're scared to buy, if they're scared to be in the public sphere, like they're not going to be engaging in economic activity. So if you don't deal with that problem, you don't have an economy actually. Um, So acting like you can just like be like, oh yeah, like some old people will die, whatever. It's like, no, man, you're not going to have a functioning hospital system. Like people who are sick with anything else cannot go to the hospital anymore. Like um, you're just going to be, I, I'm just like uh, the amount of people in the U S that I imagine will be bankrupted by the medical costs alone of actually like being treated for COVID and surviving it will be a huge burden as well on top of many other already like debt burdens that Americans are living with. So I think in that country specifically, it's ridiculous to act like you just turn the switch back on, let everyone back out. And like somehow you have an operating economy again. Um, Yeah. Even assuming we've actually eliminated COVID. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's going to be a huge. The long-term impacts are going to be huge. Mm. Yeah. To start off by giving you a lame technical answer to your, the technical part of your question about the supply (laughs) versus demand shock in my view anyway. So first, I, and I've heard this, this is the common view, is this is really a supply shock. I think it's actually both. It's more of a supply shock than a demand shock, but it's also a demand shock in the sense that in the same people way- People are losing workers, their jobs. Well, yeah. pe- well, yes, people are losing their job. And also, it, literally, if people can only leave the house once a day, then there's only so much you can buy anyway, right? So there, there is an implicit mm-hmm. demand shock. In the same way that workers aren't going to factories, people can't go to restaurants. So there, there has to be a demand element beyond the- uh, effects that Lauren is talking about, which is then uh, low demand has a general equilibrium effect of causing further decrease in demand from layoffs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Really, this gets to the problem of, which is kind of unspoken often, but it's the real reason why there are these business cycles. And what the real problem is, is that there are frictions. So, you know, in a, in a classical economy written down on a blackboard, there's no difference between, say, debt equity. For example, this is the Modigliani Miller theory of finance, right? This, of course, it's nonsense um, because debt actually does matter in a crisis because if my funding is capital, then I never go bankrupt. Um, I may run out of money, but I'll never go bankrupt. But if my funding is debt, I can actually go bankrupt because my creditors will seize my assets if I don't pay them back the coupon payment at a minimum, let alone having to pay the principal when it matures, right? And so the, the problem is that we cannot all decide to stop working for a year unless we all decide also to stop paying our debt. And then we also all decide to no longer honor contracts, right? So the problem right. is yeah. we've created these sticky, immovable relationships and agreement between each other that are not flexible mm-hmm. to these shocks that happen. This is one of the reasons why, as I've 
become older, I've become more <laughs> like sympathetic to Islamic finance. This idea that, you know, issuing debt has a certain unethical or immoral aspect to it in that it creates mm -hmm. these rigidities that it creates basically negative externalities, right? Mm -hmm. Which that, for example, outside of my, the bank I owe money to, everyone in my neighborhood would prefer that my debts are forgiven, right? Because they don't want me to go bankrupt, right? And so there's this, because there's this negative externalities that when I go bankrupt, it has these negative spillovers. Mm -hmm. So I think moving more towards actually a capital or equity financed economy would actually help us in the future for some of these shocks. Is that possible? People have talked about issuing, for example, GDP bonds. So mm -hmm. and on bonds is linked to the change in GDP. So this year, for example, no governments would have to pay any interest rate on their, their bond obligations. So I think it's more complicated just about the entire structure of debt finance capitalism that we have on the margin, yeah, the size of the demand shock relative to the, to the supply shock impacts monetary policy because that changes whether or not we basically get inflation if we stimulate demand. But I think that's really a second order concern. The first one is what mm -hmm. Lauren said, which is until we solve the, the public health uh, issue, yeah. it doesn't really matter. This is all then just blackboard theorizing. You know, this is, this is interesting. If I can put my tinfoil hat on for a little. Yeah, do it, do it. Um, I want to <laughs> connect this back to kind of a video that I saw. There's this, um, this kind of mystery in history that is the Bronze Age collapse. And that was where essentially, you know, we had all these crazy um, technologies and bureaucracy and societal structures in Egypt uh, and in Mycenae, the Mycenaean empire. And uh, then it all just kind of went away and we went to this crazy dark age. Mm -hmm. And one notion around that that I find interesting is that like, so maybe there was some kind of a shock and there was this theory that there's like some kind of a shock, maybe there's some bad harvests. And then there's these writings of like these sea people or whatnot that come and then start to destroy all of these kind of civilizations, right? And I wonder if we, and this is where the tinfoil hat part comes in, are we in a similar place to that? Where is what brought down those Bronze Age civilizations complexity? Because they were so rigid in their caste systems, they were rigid in their bureaucracies that mm -hmm. allowed them to be very efficient when things were good. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they're not nimble, one drought, yeah. there was that one drought, so then small things started to go and then that caused this huge cascade effect. That probably is what caused these like sea people writings that were people migrating from worse hit areas to then take from the places that were barely coping, which then caused the dominoes and the entire collapse of these civilizations. Can we think of that similar to now what we have here where Eric was talking about, there's all these frictions, these contracts, these debts, that these kind of all of these societal structures that we've built here that have this rigidity to it could covid be a shock that hits us like this and then we're unable to stop this kind of domino effect that will be well this person doesn't pay his debts so then that person collects on the factory but then it's not producing anything which then makes all these employees go you know like it it cascades through the entire nation what are you guys' thoughts on that relationship with like this kind of complexity notion to that susceptibility to collapse, I guess, mm -hmm. what I'm trying to get at? I don't know, Eric, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, yeah, if it doesn't happen now with COVID, and I, I'm hopeful that it won't, I think that that is what we'll see with climate change if, if we don't mitigate it. Like, right. that, like we need to come up with a way effect. to add some elasticity almost yeah. to the system, yeah. right? Yep. Mm. 
Yeah. So whether or not complexity makes a system more fragile really depends, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the worst type of complexity is where you have these cascade effects, right? Where you create a snowball or an avalanche of defaults is like the classic yeah. case, for example, in Great Depression economics. The mm -hmm. best case or scenario, 2008 recession economics. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. All the banks <laughs> like, collapse. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're all holding each other's assets. Exactly. Um, the best type of complexity or would be redundancy mm -hmm. that actually, you know, if one country goes down, at, you know, actually we're able to manufacture our supply chain through multiple mm -hmm. nodes in the network. Uh, which which of the more is descriptive of today's economy, I think is impossible to say. So, you know, for example, there's always been this concern that most people don't know how to farm and we're not going to be able to feed <laughs> ourselves, right? But if you look at where most starvation happens, well, first of all, it's never an issue of the amount of food. It's always the distribution yeah, of food. But even exactly. putting that to the side, most starvation happens in countries that have majority agricultural societies. Right. So, you know, what what percent of the time have the people in Hong Kong starved, even though there's no farmland? Right. During Japanese occupation. Right. I mean, that's a very specific yeah, it's event, supply right? chain disruption. Yeah, So mm -hmm. exactly. So, you know, are we which which are we describing more of? Right. So actually, most of the time, complex societies like, say, metropolitan Hong Kong can feed themselves better most of the time but then uh, they're more susceptible to specific types of supply chain disruptions. So I have no idea. I have no idea which better describes where we're gonna go in the future. But I, I just hope at a minimum, people become more, they build in more redundancy. They have capital financing, even if that means slower growth in, in the future, you have less negative shocks, right? So if every business saved 10% of their cash flow they wouldn't be bankrupt in two months. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with individuals as well. So here's, there's one other kind of harebrained idea I have around economics then too. I wonder if this notion of redundancy and competition though almost play against each other, right? Mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. have periods of extreme competition between companies, redundancy is always a cost that does not pay off in the short term. And so if you have high levels of competition within your economy, then yes, that's good because that builds out and like it pumps efficiency to the maximum, but that also makes the costs for buying into redundancies way more expensive because you're going to lose out. Do you guys think like, so I, I know like, I guess on the right, there's always a big focus on ah, free market, let competition bring costs down for the consumer. Is that, so does the role have to fall to big government then maybe like, who has to be the, the where, where is the trigger that forces the redundancy to come in mm -hmm. even when, because we want those efficiencies too, right? But we want those efficiencies with that set level of redundancy that's built in. My, my first answer is that it depends why there aren't redundancies. So there could just be these game theoretic elements that people would actually prefer to have redundancies, but they know it puts them at a competitive disadvantage so that they never comply with it. The other reason is we could have bad policy, right? So we could, for example, subsidize debt so people are less likely to have equity, which is what we've had to do in finance and then have several layers of regulation to ensure the opposite happens, right? And same thing with individuals. Or we could have implicit guarantees that during all economic recessions, the government will be there to provide massive financing, debt, grants, et cetera, to businesses. So there's, there is an insurance policy implicitly, so I actually don't need to pay for the monthly premium 
because I know I'm actually going to get bailed out at the end of the day. So, you know, it depends how much you think moral hazard and existence yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. are, are driving the lack of redundancies or if it's just something that's game theoretic. But I, I mean, I agree, like, you know, we were talking about Andrew Lloyd Webber earlier mm-hmm. and uh, in uh, Joseph and the uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat, yeah. right? Yep. Joseph struggles because he has to keep the grain in the pyramids for all those years of plenty. And it's like, why are you stacking away the grain? Like, it's like, things are good, right? Um, so there is a certain level of consumption smoothing. That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but keep in mind, there are many companies that have huge cash balances right now. So Apple, Google, these companies are going to be fine. They won't need bailouts. So why is it that some ministries seem to have razor thin margins with no buffers and other ones don't? I don't know how much of that is the two factors I've described. Uh, Do you have any more of those lightning questions to end us off here, Eric? I, oh, I have a few general questions. Um, okay. So, you know, feel free to keep the, the answer short, Lauren. Um, okay. But I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of things. And they're related to science or your background. Okay. <laughs> so the first is, do you think that scientists can be uh, as apolitical as they may have been? I've noticed that, you know, the March for Science, the attacks on truth. Do you, do you feel just personally as someone who works in the scientific community that you need to be more political just for that reason? Interesting. No, um, I'm not sure it's helpful, to be honest, to be particularly political, because uh, it could have like a, a backlash, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm not sure because, you know, at the end of the day, the personal is political. Um, maybe scientists have some very important things to say that should inform policy. But yeah, I'm just I'm not sure how things like um, marches and stuff like actually achieve that um, versus maybe affecting policy. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say like kind of backroom ways um, mm-hmm. when things are actually decided and, and put forward. And I think most people have no awareness of these kinds of policy changes that happen that basically make data, for example, more accessible or less accessible or allow certain research to be prioritized or deprioritized. So I think scientists, if they want to be political, should think more like politicians and not, um, not maybe march in the street, maybe actually engage directly with people whose minds they want to change. Right, right. That makes sense. So what think some of the biggest barriers are still for women trying to get into science or basically Ooh. to have gotten where, where you are today? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say biology is still a huge factor. If you want to have kids, uh, I think there's still a pretty big assumption that women are going to be basically kind of taking care of the kid a lot. Certainly, mat leave has to happen at some point, And frankly, there is no good time. And then after mat leave, like once you actually have a kid, you really have to organize and, and balance everything in a way that I think falls often disproportionately on women. Um, in a lot of relationships I've seen, for example, I have friends who are professors who uh, whenever they go to a conference or are out uh, later at night, people are like, how are the kids? What are the kids doing? And her husband has never, ever asked that question. Um, nobody is ever wondering, like, who's taking care of the kids? What's going on with the kids? Um, and so I think women have to basically be very, very careful who they marry, who they procreate with, um, and how they kind of fit that into their life. And it still tends to be uh, in a way that, like, keeps 
all of your kind of personal life in the back burner in a way, or like at least visibly kind of set to one side and you're like living and working your whole professional life. So I still think biology is like one of the number one kind of issues there that is just like very hard to overcome. Otherwise, I'm not sure. It's hard to me for me to speak to it. I'm sure there is a lot of sexism that happens, but I've been very fortunate and really haven't actually, I think, maybe encountered it or, or been aware of encountering it in a lot of the, the fields and classrooms and everything that I've been in. So it's just hard to know. Um, and I think also with things like Me Too happening and everything, I think men are starting to realize um, maybe how they come off or or might have un unintended kind of consequences to their actions, uh, which they thought maybe were invited or um, appropriate and um, maybe are seeing hopefully from another perspective that, you know, what you maybe have been doing hasn't been either invited or, or appropriate behavior. So hopefully that will have a less negative impact uh, with time um, on women in the field. But yeah, I would say those probably are the top two. But again, I'm, I'm not really an expert in that area other than being a woman. Um, <laughs> so. so Lauren, you have 31 articles on Google Scholar. Oh, Okay. What is the secret to the Lauren Urban production function? Mm. How are you so productive? Collaboration. I am not first author on any of those articles, we should all note. So Jane. I am second author or lower on all of them. Um, so yeah, that's where like collaboration, I would say big time. Though if you want to be a first author scholar, maybe don't collaborate so much, uh, to be honest. What else? Make friends, talk about what you do a lot. Um, my first article on there is actually with my roommate who I like lived in a house with in uh, uh, Toronto when I first moved oh. here. Yeah, and uh, he was volunteering with a research project at SickKids. I wasn't even at SickKids at the time. He was like, we really need someone to do our stats. And I was like, perfect, I'm studying stats. So I think by leading with what you have to, like what you enjoy doing and what you're studying and what your focus is, people will find you sometimes and, and invite you in. So being personable and friendly and open about like enjoying stats or analytics or anything, I think can also get you kind of in the door as a collaborator. A lot of these studies. Yeah. My last question for you, Lauren, yeah. I'm kind of combining a couple of things. So take what you want out of it, but sure. you've lived in both the United States and in Canada. Mm -hmm. so and in what, Scotland. And in yeah. Scotland. Yeah. But mainly those two. <laughs> mainly those two. Yes. <laughs> What do you think makes Canada so different from the U.S.? And if you couldn't live in either the U.S. or Canada, where would you live? And I mean on a longer term basis. Yeah, great question. It's hard to say, to be honest, because in the U.S. I only lived in Idaho, but in Canada I've lived in Vancouver and Toronto. And I find Vancouver and Toronto very different and potentially even as different as living in the U.S. versus Canada I think one of the biggest differences um, I've noticed in Canada is just <laughs> the determination to not be American or to be confused as American or to basically kind of um, act in um, or situate uh, Canada in kind of like a, like an opposition to America, like not like opposing them, but being distinctive. That's something I appreciate a lot because I certainly left America not wanting to come to another America. But in doing so, I think, I think that Canadians are still quite 
similar to Americans. Like we have to be, we share so much of our economies with each other. Um, we go back and forth across the border. Like we're, like all Canadians for the most part are living so close to the border that they're really like close to Americans and America all the time. So I think they can't help but be very impacted by that. Perhaps there's less of an aggressive anti-intellectualism in Canada. That's, that's one thing. Um, I also think there's uh, more embrace for immigrants, at least from what I've seen. The problem is though I've been in really urban areas where that just tends to be the case in general um, as it would be in the US. So it's hard to know if that was really moving from like a, a smaller town um, to like larger um, cities. Yeah, but honestly, it it's hard to know. Uh, there's certainly differences, but I think that like, yeah, as I said, the differences are so, it's so diverse across Canada that it's really hard to say. Okay. So more variation within than maybe between. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and my follow-up to that, Lauren, was the, which country would you live in if it wasn't ah, the US? Yes. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> hmm, that is a very hard question. Probably Scotland, to be honest. Just it's, not England. I feel like it's a bit of a, a Canada to the uh, if England was America. So I think I enjoyed that because certainly in Scotland, like they are in opposition to England. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think a bit like continuing on that kind of culture would be nice. And I love the weather. It's like kind of gray and rainy. So just Perfect. my style. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jared, do you have any other questions? I always want to know, what is a person's favorite novel? So Lauren, mm. do you have a favorite novel that you could recommend to people, especially when they have uh, maybe more free time? Yeah, yeah. Oof. okay, that's hard. Can I give like, like maybe two? You can give whatever you want, yeah. Okay, sure. okay. Gone with the Wind actually okay. uh, was one of my favorite books growing up. Um, I really enjoyed it in a way I did not think I would. I think it is awesome historical fiction. It's so interesting and there's so many layers and everything is way better than the movie. So yeah, Gone with the Wind, uh, I would say is right up there. And then the other one I would say is a trilogy, not a novel, sorry for cheating, uh, Asimov Foundation series. Very awesome. I mean, the whole idea of psychohistory is like effectively economics and predictive modeling. So yeah, like naturally, I loved it. And it's just, it's very well written. Like I love Asimov's writing. Yeah. All right. I guess on that note, uh, I'd like to say thank you very much, Lauren, for coming on our show. I think Thank you for is... having me. This has been so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Lauren. We really appreciate your time and uh, answering all of our long and varied questions. <laughs> Great. Have a good one, guys. Thank you so okay. much. Until next. Bye, everybody. Bye.